this evening is really a phrase from a familiar song. And the phrase is this, O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. We'll start in John chapter 5 and 23. Notice that verse, John 5, 23, where Jesus says that the goal is this. The goal is to honor the Son just as you would honor the Father. In fact, he says, if one does not honor the Son, then he cannot honor the Father. You see, come let us adore Him. Some reasons why we want to get into this idea of adoring Jesus. First, because we want to learn to better obey and serve Him. If we adore Him, then our natural response will be, I want to serve Him better. Give my life to Him in a more meaningful way. And then we want to be more bold for Him. If Jesus really is deserving of the honor and adoration that He really is, then what can we possibly be afraid of? As Ken mentioned in the reading before the Lord's communion this morning, from Romans 8.31, if God be for us, then who can be against us? But one of my main purposes tonight is to simply let the reality of Jesus and adoring Him soak into our soul. Just let it be. Let it be what it is. What we're going to do is to go through several passages or several happenings in the life of Jesus in addition to a couple statements from uh, the scriptures and the writings of Paul. I'm just going to go through these and I hope and pray that you will notice these uh, with me. But as we do, just let it let it build your faith. Let it be part of your heart. And so we'll start with Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, where the wise men came from the east. And they asked, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and come to worship him. And of course, the inquiry was made as to where this Savior would be born. And the advisors of the king said, Well, we know because the prophecy says that he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now I want us to notice that Jesus here is honored by the prophecy from Micah 5 verse 2 that points out exactly where the Christ child would be born. Bethlehem of Judea. So they can go and find him there most likely. Notice also that Jesus is honored here by the star or the starlight. Both the prophecy and the star is a direct working of God. 
God has no problem bringing light into existence when he gets ready to do that. When he said in the beginning, let there be light, there was light. We remember in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2 that, that the angel of the Lord appeared in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush to Moses. And Moses observed. He noticed the bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. God knows how to bring about a light. In Exodus chapter 10 and verses 21 to 23, you might recall that as God brought the ninth plague upon the Egyptians, that the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. He told Moses to raise up his hand toward heaven and bring about the plague of darkness. And it was pitch dark for three days. And the Egyptians, they could not see one another and they did not leave the place where they were at. But the Israelites had light in their dwellings. Notice that, Exodus 10, 21 and 23. Notice how God was able to put light where he wanted to put light and put darkness where he wanted to put a darkness. In Exodus 13 and verse 21, we remember that God led the children of Israel out into the wilderness through a pillar, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, that light, that pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, 21. In Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. Matthew uh, 17, verses 2 and 3. And it says, His face become as the sun itself, and his clothes became as white and bright as light. No problem for God to bring about a miraculous light when he wanted to do that. In Acts chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Paul was telling about his conversion experience and his meeting of the Lord. He was on his way to Damascus and he said, Behold, a great light shined all about me and it was just as bright as the sun when you combine his accounts of Acts 9, 22 and Acts 9, chapters 9, chapters 22 and chapter 26, you'll find that he said it was just as bright as the sun itself. And so the sun is honored here by both the prophecy and the great light, the star that brought the wise man to him. And here in Matthew 2, the sun is also adored and honored by the actions of the wise men. The wise men had, came from the, had come from the east, and so they honor him by their travel and their, their, their expense and efforts. They also honor him by their attitude of heart. Notice there in, in Matthew 2 and verse 10 that when they saw the star over the place where the child was, that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's one thing that adoring the Son can bring to our lives. Is we truly adore, we truly honor the Son, the Son of God, then it will bring a type of joy to our hearts that is, is not available to, to otherwise. And then they honored the Son by their worship of Him. 
They go on into the house and they worship him. And they honor him with their treasures. They open up their treasures and they took out from there gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They honored the son. Matthew 2, verses 2 through 11. See, if you will, that they honored, he is honored by the prophecy, by the great light, and by the actions of the wise men. What did they do? They traveled in order to see him. They rejoiced with a great exceeding joy. They went in and worshipped him. They went in and gave of their treasures uh, to the family. That's Matthew chapter 2. Now go over with me to our second passage in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Matthew 8, 1 and 2. This is when Jesus had come off from the mount where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think that's, that mount is really... Uh, we're not really told what mount that is, whether it was just a big hill or whether it was some particular mountain. But he comes down from the mount, and uh, as soon as he does, a leper comes to him. And notice how the leper will honor the Lord here. First, he honors him by his posture. He kneels before him. He kneels before him. That is certainly a sign of respect and adoration uh, toward the Son. Now, the parallel accounts there from Matthew 8 concerning this leper is also found in Mark 1, 40 and 41. And Luke 5 and verse 8. Luke 5 and verse 12. Luke 5 verse 12 says that the leper comes and falls on his face before the Son of God. Falls on his face. So he kneels before him, he falls on his face... And then he implores Jesus to do something about his leprosy, but he also honors him by his words. I'm really taken by his words here. He says to Jesus, he says, If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I don't think the leper here is reflecting on the Lord's goodness or compassion. I think he's showing a great deal of humility and confidence. He's saying to the Lord, you have, I believe, that you have the complete ability to cleanse me from my leprosy. But you know best. If it's best for me not to be clean, fine. But if it's good for me to be clean, then please do this. I believe that's the complete idea of his words when he says, If thou will." You can make me clean. He, was, he came to the right person. He knows that Jesus is the Lord. And he says, Lord, if it is your will, could you please make me clean? What a great honor this, this leper shows uh, to the Lord. He does cleanse the leper of uh, his uncleanness, of his sickness. So that's Matthew 8, verses 1 and 2. And then go with me to a third passage, which is Matthew chapter 8, 23 to 27. This is when Jesus is on a little ship with his disciples, and a great storm comes up. Matthew 8, 23 27. And in this account, instead of, uh, there is going to be honor and adoration shown to Jesus, but first, honor must be learned. Because the disciples come, the storm has come up. Jesus is asleep. 
And they say, come down to wake him up. And they say, uh, we're going to perish. Save us. It must have been quite a storm. We're going to perish. Save us. And you, you remember how Jesus responds. He says, oh, you little faith, why are you so afraid? Oh, you little faith, why are you so afraid? Did they really think that the Savior of the world and the Creator of the world was going to drown? It's absurd when you think about it. But compare that to our anxiety that we show sometimes today. Do they really think that the Savior of the world who is there on a mission from God is going to allow himself to drown? Come on. Come on. This song that we sometimes sing, I want to turn over to it, page 423, I think it is, 423 in our song books. Master, the tempest is raging. I just want to read from the chorus here. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, notice this, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. There's no water going to swallow up the ship where the master of the universe is there sleeping. Did they really think that he was going to allow himself to drown when he was on a mission from the Father? The creator of the world is in complete control of his creation. He has no problem. No problem with that whatsoever. It is good for us to stop and consider the power of the Lord, his control over his creation, when we become fretful uh, in our lives. Now the response of Jesus' miracle here as he calms the storm is quite telling. They say, who is this man? Or who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay, if the winds and the sea obey him, then that certainly means I ought to obey him. If if he has that kind of raw power, then I ought to be able to put my trust in him. If he has that kind of raw power, then I ought to be able to to know that if he is with me, then then what can be against me? So notice there, Matthew 2, Matthew 8, and again in Matthew 8. Let's go over now to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Around verse uh, 33. This is Jesus walking on the water. The parallel accounts, I think, are found in Mark chapter 6 and John chapter 6. So keep that in mind. The response of the walking on the water, Matthew 14, 33, they worship him. When Jesus gets back in the boat, they worship him. Mark records uh, this from Mark 6, 51. It says, the people were utterly... Utterly astounded. That's what, at least from the English Standard Version, that's what it has. The people were utterly astounded. It means beyond their minds, they were astounded at what they had just observed. There are several miracles involved in walking on the water. Okay, 
First, Jesus walked on the water. Second, Jesus had dismissed his disciples, told them to go ahead of him. He had been teaching a multitude of people. He said, I'm going to dismiss the crowd, and then I'm going to go pray on the mountain. So that's what he did. Now, he sent them on to the sea. They started started their journey. He goes and dismisses the crowd. Now, I don't know if that means he shook the hands of everybody. Can you imagine trying to shake the hands of all that multitude? Probably it just meant that he, he spoke to the crowd and gave them a final encouragement, and then um, they dismissed. And he went up to the mountain to pray. The second miracle is Jesus caught up. He, walked, he didn't just walk on the water, but he caught up with them. The fourth watch of the night, he caught up with them as he walked on the water. And one of the accounts says that he could have passed them. He could have passed them. He saw their reaction. You know, they said, they said oh, is that a ghost? What is that? They, they were very terrified when they saw him walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night. But the, the third part, the third miracle is he could have passed them. The speed of which Jesus was traveling on top of that water is what I'm getting at. Okay. That's a miracle in itself. And then the fourth miracle is that he enabled Peter to walk on the water with him. That's pretty awesome. And then when Peter began to sink, the fifth miracle is, when Peter began to sink, he got Peter back up on top of the water and then helped him walk on the water. The both of them, can, you, can you picture that? Both of them walking on the water back to the boat. Of course, Another challenging part of this walking in the water is that there was a constant storm. The wind was beating against the boat. It was causing much hard travel uh, for them. So Jesus is walking in the water with Peter with the storm raging. And that's one of the reasons Peter lost his faith there for a little bit because he saw the winds and then he began to take his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. But another miracle was that when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, suddenly the storm stopped. Just suddenly it stopped. And then this, from John's account, John 6, 21, it says, immediately they were on the land. They were at their destination. So they're out there in the middle of the sea. It's a fourth watch of the night. There's a storm raging. But once Jesus gets to the boat, boom, the storm ceases. Boom, they're at the land. John 6, 21. Miracle, 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 miracle. All in one little episode there. No wonder they fell down to worship him. Do we believe the Lord actually did these things? And if so, then what about the quality of our faith? See, let us come and adore him. Certainly from the walking on the water we can do that. Next series of statements I want us to go to is over in Acts chapter 7, about 54 to 60. And this is the preaching and death of Stephen. Notice in Acts 7 that Stephen honors the Lord Jesus here. Acts chapter 7, along about verse 54. You know, it's, I've been listening to this uh, in the morning some. 
I've been listening a lot to the middle part of the book of Acts. And listen to this sermon. What an incredible sermon this is by Stephen. He gives a tremendous survey of Old Testament history. It's just quite amazing in and of itself. But then he gets down and he begins to get real close to the hearts of these Jewish people who are so enraged against him. Notice that Stephen honors the Lord by preaching the Lord. Notice here in Acts 7, verse 52 and 53, actually, it says that the prophets had announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who would be Jesus. And then, here's what Stephen said. Whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels who did not keep it. But you, Jews, who are so antagonistic against Jesus and his church, you are the ones that murdered him, betrayed and murdered him. And they, you know, Stephen was as good as dead after he said that. But Stephen honored the Lord by his teaching and preaching. But notice also, Stephen honors the Lord by his recognition of the Lord's position. Notice what Stephen says here in verse 55 of Acts 7. It says, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He honored him by noticing that this is where Jesus is. He is ruling now at the right hand of God. And Stephen recognizes this. But also notice here that he recognizes Jesus as Lord. Stephen calls out in verse 59 before he dies. He calls out and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice the confidence that Stephen has that as he dies, he is going to go and be with Jesus. Notice the confidence he has that Jesus is absolutely able to take his self, his real self, his inner self, and bring it right to Jesus. That's the kind of confidence we want to have. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It reminds us of a statement Paul makes over here in Romans 14. Please run over there. You'll want to mark it. You haven't marked it in a while. Romans 14 and verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says. Romans 14, 8 and 9. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. This is one of these statements you want to remember. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's just verse 8. Verse 9, Romans 14. For to this end, Christ Jesus died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. And that is the faith of Stephen right there. Stephen fully believed that Jesus is Lord over the living and the dead. So therefore, whether he lived, Jesus is his Lord. Whether he died, Jesus is still his Lord. It's just that simple because you are full of faith. Stephen honored him by his preaching. He honored him by recognizing him 
in his position at the right hand of God. He honors him here by recognizing him as the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Both the Lord of the dead and the living. No problem. No problem. Death is no problem for the Lord. And it's no problem for the Christian. And then Stephen honors him here by following the example of Jesus. This is beautiful. One of the great ways we can honor the Lord is to be like Him. So notice here Stephen says, Lord, don't lay this sin against them. Really? Amazing thought there, Stephen. They are stoning you. They're taking you out of the city, away from the crowd, and they are stoning you to death. And you're going to say, Lord, lay not this sin against them. Luke 23, 34, Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Come, let us adore him. That's what Stephen did. Stephen adored the Lord. Stephen honored the Son of God, both in life and in death. Can we do more than that? And then the next series of statements is found in Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 11. Right after Paul says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he goes on to say, Wherefore God has highly exalted him. Exalted him. Notice the honor being shown by Paul here to, to the Son of God. God exalted him. Whereas evil men condemned him and tortured him and whipped him and murdered him, the Father exalted him. Through the resurrection and through the ascension upon high, the Father Father has exalted him. It's similar to what Peter says in, in Acts 4 verse 11. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. That's what God did. That's what God did. You crucify my son, okay? He's dying for the sins of the world, but I'm going to highly exalt him. and He's going to be the head of the corner, which he is. He exalted him. Next, in Paul's statement here in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, notice... He highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. How does Jesus rank? This is the idea of rank. R-A-N-K, rank, level. Jesus ranks highly. He's given him a name which is above every name. The most important question is for us in a practical sense is how does Jesus rank in our own lives? How does he rank in our decisions? In God's mind, there's no greater name than the name of Jesus. But looking around, I'm afraid that Jesus doesn't rank very highly in the hearts of some. So he says he highly exalted him Given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This is 
definitely the ideal of devotion and worship to the Lord. And it says every knee should bow. Paul in Romans 11 verse 4 is recounting the time when Elijah ran away from, from the scene and hid in a cave. And God reminded him, I've still got 7,000 men in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah got the idea that he was the only one who cared strongly for God and who opposed idols like the Baal worship. But God reminded him, I've still got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, they have not given themselves over to the worship of Baal. They've not given themselves over to the practice of the festivities of Baal. They have not given themselves over to that religion whatsoever. When we kneel before the Savior, then we are giving ourselves over completely, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to worshiping Him as well. We honor Him because we recognize that God has given him a name which is above every name. We honor him because he did become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Well, one more set of passage verses. 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 1.12. Notice Paul's little paragraph there. First, Paul honors the Son by thanking him. By thank, he says, I thank him. That is my Lord Jesus. I thank him. I thank him. <clears throat> when you are taking the Lord's Supper, do you take minutes during, those, during that time frame to thank Jesus? To thank him? John 15, John 15 5 says, um, without the Lord, we could be nothing. We would be nothing. That's just soundly true. Do you, th- do you take at least that time during the Lord's Supper? If you do it there, if you do it there in the Lord's Supper and you do it sincerely, you'll be doing it all week long. Thanking Jesus. Paul thanked him. And Paul goes on to honor the Lord there by giving him credit for the strength that he had. Paul had a lot of strength. It was no problem for Paul to travel. He seemed to have endless energy. He explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not, was not bestowed upon me in vain. But I labor more abundantly than they all, than everybody else. Yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He honors him by giving him the credit for the strength that he has. He honors the son by giving him credit for the ministry he has there in verse 12. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. Notice 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. He says, I thank him, Lord Jesus, who gave me strength. He enabled me. That means he gave me strength. And he put me into this ministry. I'll tell you what, do you have a ministry for the Lord? You ought to have. If you're a Christian, you've got a ministry for the Lord. 
You've got things that you do all the time for the Lord. And he credits the Lord. He is thankful for his ministry. He's not complaining about it. He's, he wished he could, could do more for the Lord. And then he gives Jesus, of course, the credit for the forgiveness that he had received. Verse 13 there in 1 Timothy 1, he goes, on, he goes on to say, you know, before I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I injured people. Well, he was vile, he was violent, and he was vocal. Okay, that's what Paul was. Paul, before he became a Christian, he was vile. He looked with a, like bloodthirsty, like a bloodthirsty wolf. He looked for Christians to destroy. He was violent. He was violent. You know, he was there approving of the death of Stephen. He was in charge of that stoning. He was a violent person. He was very vocal against Jesus. Just as sincere as he could be, but very violent, vocal, violent. He gives Jesus the credit for his overcoming, for his knowledge, for his learning of the truth for the forgiveness that he received. Because verse 14, he says here in 1 Timothy 1, he said, but the grace of our Lord, notice that, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant for me with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That's where we all need to be. If the grace of God means much to anybody, we ought to find a way to get in Jesus, Jesus Christ. Of course, we know we're baptized into Christ. And he gives Jesus the credit for the entire gospel plan of salvation because he says there in 1 Timothy 1.15, Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now you say, what do I get out of all this honoring of the Lord? Well, if we have any heart whatsoever toward God, we'll be right at the same spot where Paul is there in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I have to admit, when I pray to God, that's how I look. And any time that we seek to honor the Son, Anytime we come and adore Him, it leaves us with a sense of humility. It leaves us with a sense of respect for Him, love for Him, hopefully more courage for Him, and definitely a desire to worship Him more and more often. Oh, come let us adore Him. Let's sing a song of encouragement that perhaps can inspire us, each of us, to be more diligent in our service to the Lord. Maybe this song can help us to have a greater resolve right now and as we leave this evening that we're going to honor the Lord in all the ways that, we have us, that He would have us to do. Won't you please come right now? As we stand together, as we sing, Brother Paul.